Uh, we're gonna start working, get back into our series that we've been in called Summer Rules, where we've been working our way through the 10 Commandments. And as you can tell, the kids down in MP Kids have been working their way through them as well. Now they just laid out all 10 of them for us, and this week we finally arrive at the last one. We finally arrive at the one that the kids just taught us there at the end. Do you remember what it was? Do not covet, right? All together now. Do not covet. All right, but we've got to do the hand motions, all right? Here we go, ready? Do not covet, that's right. So uh, this morning, every time I say the word covet, you need to do this, all right? Actually, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that, please. Uh, Anyway, this command is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. So go ahead and flip open there if you have a Bible with you. Verses will be on the screen as well. Uh, But if you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one as a gift. We'd love to give you one as a gift. So just stop by guest services area afterwards and and we will give you one to take home because we believe that there is power in the word of God and it will transform your life. So Exodus 20, verse 17, all right, here we go. The kids did a great job with it, but it's actually a little bit longer than just do not covet. So here's what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All right. Can I be honest with you for a second? It's probably a good way to start a sermon, right? With honesty. This command feels out of place to me. I mean, think about it. Don't worship any gods other than the almighty creator of the universe who loves you and miraculously delivered you from Egypt. Don't kill each other. Stop wanting that donkey. It just feels so anticlimactic after all this buildup of these massive commands that feel like such big deals. And then this one just doesn't. I mean, it's not like I'm killing anyone. I just, you know, I, I want that ox. I don't, I'm not even going to steal the ox. I just really want that ox to be my ox. Okay, I, I actually don't want an ox, so please don't put one in my yard this week. I would have no idea what to do with it. Uh, but coveting just doesn't seem to be in the same league as murder and adultery. It just doesn't. So while it might seem like coveting shouldn't be as big of a deal... God apparently thinks it's important enough to put in this list. And if my thoughts about what's a big deal conflicts with what God says is a big deal, I need to reevaluate and dig deeper into, into how I'm viewing things and, and, and what I understand about them. So we're going to slow down and take a closer look at coveting this morning. To covet means to want something so bad you feel like you have to have it. To want something so bad you feel like you have to have it. So in this context, it's essentially the same thing as envy. Coveting, envy, jealousy, greed, they're all kind of in that same ballpark. Exodus 20 lays out some things that I'm not supposed to covet. A house, a spouse, servants, livestock. But notice the way God ends his covenant. It actually... It makes me laugh when I think about it a little bit. It's like God starts off and says, like, don't covet their house, their spouse, their servants, their ox, their donkey, or, uh, you know what, this is going to take too long. I'm running out of room on the tablet. Just don't covet anything. Because that's how he ends it. Don't covet anything. Do not covet anything. God expanded this, this command to include anything 
Because we are tempted to covet everything. We covet stuff. We want that house, that car, those clothes, the new phone, the, the donkey apparently. We, we want them so badly we feel like we have to have them. We covet relationships. We're jealous of the friendships another person has. We covet somebody else's spouse, whether we're single or married. Because it just seems so great. Compared, compared to, to our husband or wife, we think they're better looking or more fun or more thoughtful and kind or, or, or more, more helpful. We covet experiences. We see all the vacation pictures people post on Instagram. And we'd love to do something like that, but we don't have the time or the money, but we still feel like we have to have it. We just, oh, our life isn't complete without that, without those experiences. We covet opportunities. We think, you know, I'm more talented than that person. If they would just give me a chance, if they would give me that opportunity, I could show them that I, I'm just as good as them. Parents, we have to watch ourselves with this one double time when it comes to our kids. We think our kids should have the playing time that that other kid is getting. We think that our kid should get invited to that special leadership development program at school, not the kid who is only getting asked because his parents are friends with the principal's sister-in-law's former mailman. We want our kids to have those opportunities so bad that we will do almost anything in order to get it for them. We feel like their lives won't be complete without it, and so we, we press to get it for them. We covet jobs. You know, somebody else has our dream job, and we know that we would be better at it than them. Or at least we would appreciate it more. We covet money. If I made as much money as, as, as that person, I would definitely use it better than they do. Or we covet the scholarship that somebody else in our class got. We think that we should have received it instead of them. We covet recognition. Have you ever coveted the, the number of likes or followers somebody has? Or when it comes to the workplace, it's not about a promotion or a raise for me. It's just, I want, I want to finally, I want someone to finally recognize how important I am to this company. The higher-ups, they always tell my boss how great of a job he's doing, but I'm the one pulling all the weight around here. I mean, he doesn't even know where the last, to find last month's reports in, in the drive. We covet power. We think that if we were the boss, all the problems around here would be solved by lunchtime on Tuesday, and everyone would love us. We covet the perfect life. We scroll through Instagram or Facebook and see all the perfect lives of everyone else. They're always smiling, always dressed up, always out to eat somewhere nice. They're always on vacation. They're always laughing with their husband or wife or kids or friends. And they always have a clean house. They have this perfect life always. And we want that. And if we stop and think about it for a second, we know that that's not true. We know that their life isn't perfect. But coveting lies to us and tells us that contentment and joy and a carefree life are always just a few things away. They're just a few things away. And those perfect people, they have those things. If I could just have what they have, my life would be perfect too. So when God gave this command, he expanded it to say, don't covet anything because he knows that we are tempted to covet everything. Anything we see we like, we're tempted to want so badly that we have to have it. So at its root, coveting is discontentment. 
There's a lot more wrong with it too, which we'll talk about later, but discontentment is us saying, the good life is just one or two things away. Once I get those, everything will be right in my world. As you may have noticed, this, this command is a bit unique from the others as well. And that coveting is primarily a heart issue. The others are heart issues as well, but at least how they're presented in Exodus 20, don't kill is an action. Don't commit adultery, another action. Don't make idols, another action. Don't lie, another action. Don't covet, wait, that's not an action. That's aiming at our desires. That's aiming at my feelings and my thoughts. It's an internal thing, a heart issue. Coveting is an internal desire, maybe even a good desire that's gotten out of control and it's crossed the line to become sinful. And when those desires move from innocent wants to I have to have it, it starts to rob us of the freedom that God has given to us. Throughout this series, we've talked about how God didn't give these commands to restrict our freedom. They are a gift to us. Remember, before God even started giving these commands, he gave this pe- his people this reminder in Exodus 20, verse 2. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the God who gave you your freedom. So now to fully experience and enjoy that freedom, follow these commands because they're the only way to flourish in that freedom. If you start killing each other, there's no freedom there. Always, always looking over your shoulder, sleeping with one eye open because you're scared that somebody might come murder you. That's not freedom. You start to steal from each other. There's no freedom there. Constantly worried that someone bigger or stronger or more powerful could walk off with the things that you need to put food on the table and provide for yourself and your family. That's not freedom. Worshiping other gods God says, I'm the one who set you free from slavery. There is no freedom in other gods. I'm the one who set you free. I'm the God of freedom. And now God is saying, don't covet, because there's no freedom there either. It's like this. Have you ever been to a birthday party for a little kid? One maybe where the parents went all out. I mean, there's pizza and hot dogs and cake and ice cream and eight different kinds of drink that will rot your teeth as you swallow. There's a bouncy house and somebody making balloon animals. Like, this thing is epic. But then you notice this kid off to the side sitting by himself with this face on. And you're like, I wonder what that kid did to get put in time out. Maybe, maybe like called someone a name or maybe some other kid called him a name and he's upset. But then you realize actually nothing has happened. He went over and sat in that chair all by himself. He's not angry because someone called him meanie head. He's not there because he pushed someone in the bouncy house. He's sulking in that chair because that pile of presents isn't for him. And his dad is there trying to help. He tries to explain it to him. You know, your birthday is, is in a few months and like there'll be presents then. And, and he, the kids isn't having it. His dad brings him a balloon and will try to help to just like get him out of the funk, right? But the kid throws it on the ground. And then he informs his dad that the bouncy house is stupid too. This kid cannot enjoy the cake or the pizza or the tooth-destroying sugar water. 
He can't enjoy the games. He can't enjoy the bouncy house. He can't enjoy his friends because coveting is stealing his joy. He isn't content with all the good things freely available to him. He needs more in order to be happy. The Ten Commandments are for our freedom. Don't covet. Don't do it. Don't go down that road. If you do, you will re-enslave yourself to the misery of chasing stuff that will never deliver on its promise to satisfy you. Don't re-enslave yourself to staring at that car in your neighbor's driveway. You're having a good day and it's all ruined because your neighbor drives by in that new truck that you want so badly. Your day is ruined because you've changed your joy to that car. We co- when we covet, we are freely forfeiting our freedom. We're saying, God, if freedom doesn't include that, I don't want it. We rob ourselves of God's best for us when we covet. We hurt ourselves when we covet. And I think that holds part of the answer to why we think this command isn't as important as the others. Yes, coveting hurts us, but we're lulled into thinking that it just hurts us, that it's only about me. It's it's an internal problem. It's a my heart problem. And I can convince myself that it doesn't hurt those around me. It doesn't destroy community. Killing, adultery, stealing, lying about someone, it's obvious how those directly hurt people. But coveting, discontentment, lack of gratitude, envy, I can treat those like they're not that big of a deal because they're just me problems. And I think that's why we can look at this commandment and think it's not as big of a deal as the others. It's not like I'm hurting anyone. Not hurting anyone else. But that's not how God treats it here in Exodus 20. Why is that? Because it's impossible for us to keep our heart issues isolated to us. It is impossible. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. If you have a heart issue, it will show up in all of life. Because what we do flows from our hearts. So if we allow coveting a place in our hearts, it will show up and wreak havoc in our relationship with God and others. And I want to take a closer look at both of those things. How coveting impacts our relationship with God and then how it impacts our relationship with others. First, our relationship with God. To put it bluntly, coveting is idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. I realize that might sound a little bit strong, like I'm overstating to make a case, but if that's what you're thinking, you're going to have to take that up with the Apostle Paul because that's exactly what he calls it in Colossians 3 5. In Colossians 3, there's this list of things that we're supposed to put to death in our lives which is really strong language. If you find any of these things hanging around your life, kill them. 
One of those things you're supposed to put to death? Quote, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry, end quote. Put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. God wasn't taking coveting lightly in Exodus, and Paul is not taking it lightly here. Coveting is idolatry. Don't mess around with it. Put it to death. And in case once isn't enough, Paul says it again in Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that anyone who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Coveting is idolatry. When I covet, I am an idolater. So how does that work exactly? How, how is coveting equal to idolatry? Well, an idol is a man-made statue usually representing a god. People would worship these statues believing rain or healing or protection or blessing would come to them as a result. Believing a statue is, would, would bring this to them. So idolatry was people putting their hope into a created thing. That's not too far off from coveting, is it? Putting our hope in some created thing. We look around at all the created things out there, at the stuff we see other people have, and we think, that's what I need. I can't be happy unless I get that. I have to have that. That thing will solve my problems. If I had that, I would finally, finally be fulfilled. Putting our hope in that created thing to give us significance or fulfillment or joy. So when we covet, we turn away from God and pursue some created thing instead. Trusting that it will bring us fulfillment, contentment, joy, security, peace, prosperity, meaning something. It will bring us whatever we desire. So idolatry and coveting are both putting our hope in a created thing instead of God. And every single time, idols fail to deliver. We change jobs because we are sure that this one is going to bring us contentment. It doesn't. So we go on a vacation knowing that it will bring us this lasting peace and joy from the experience, and it doesn't. We set our sights on that new pickleball paddle, a pair of shoes, a tool, and a, uh, an updated house of plants, or an 80-inch TV, or whatever, because we are positive that deep and lasting joy will be shipped in the same box as that new idol. Surprise. It doesn't work. Idols fail to deliver every single time. They can't satisfy because God, God won't let them satisfy. He loves us too much to let us be satisfied with anything other than him. But it's crazy because we just keep doing it. Over and over and over, we have to have it, and we chase the next thing, and we spend time scrolling through Amazon and scrolling through every site, looking up reviews, because we think that that, 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 that last idol, that didn't solve my problem, but ooh, I bet that one will. That one will. So we get my focus, my attention to that, and I go and I finally get it, I go, ah, that didn't do it. Oh, ooh, that one over there. I'm sure that one will. So we turn our focus to that. We pursue it. We pursue it. We get it and we go, not that one either. Over and over and over again. This cycle repeats itself. And we make sacrifices to these idols. 
We work 70 hours a week neglecting our friends and family and God because we have to have that promotion to be happy. And so we turn away from the things that God says are good in order to get the thing that we believe we have to have. We make sacrifices to these idols. We spread rumors about people because we think that if their popularity goes down, mine can go up. And I just have to be seen that way by my classmates and my friends. We make sacrifices to these idols. We sacrifice what we know is good in order to get them. I mean, how many times do I need to be let down by these things before I start to realize that the Bible is right? That idols are worthless and they're not worth the sacrifice. They're not worthy of the sacrifice. They're actually worse than worthless. Idols lead us away from the God who set us free and they rob us of the good that he wants to bless us with because we believe the lie that we can find the same thing he offers in something else. God says, I love you unconditionally and I'm offering you true joy that won't fade. I'm offering you peace that defies understanding. I'm offering you every spiritual blessing in Jesus. I will provide for you. I will watch over you. I will never leave you or abandon you. I'm inviting you to come and to be my child, to be close to me. And we say, yeah. But you know what would be really good? A new phone. When we think about it that way, we see the absurdity. We see the absurdity, and yet we keep going back to it. I keep going back to it. Do you see how coveting isn't just a small thing that affects only me? It, it, it wreaks havoc on my relationship with God. Because it means I'm continually putting other things above him. Coveting and idolatry. Putting our hope in something created to bring us what only God can. Coveting and idolatry. Where we take a created thing and place it higher in our lives than our creator. Coveting hurts our relationship with God. But what about my relationship with others? How does coveting hurt those around me? Well, let's look at Romans 13. Romans 13 verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not covet is part of loving your neighbor as yourself. So if I covet then, I cannot love my neighbor. That's what this is saying. Now go back to Exodus 20, 17. All right, let's read it carefully. Because you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say you shall not covet a better house. What does it say? You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his servants or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Three times the phrase your neighbor pops up in this verse. And two times, even though it doesn't say neighbor, it says his, which is talking about your neighbor. So it's not just any house, it's my neighbor's house. Not just any job, but it's my coworker's job. Not just any vacation, but that vacation that I saw my old friend just went on. 
Now here's where the rubber meets the road with coveting and my ability to love others. Because if I believe that my happiness, that my fulfillment, that my joy is wrapped up in something that you have, what's that going to do to me? How is that going to position me in relation to you when I start to believe that you are holding my joy hostage? You better believe I'm going to be bitter at you. I'm going to look at you and not see someone to love, but to see someone who is keeping me from being truly, finally, fully content. It's your fault that I'm not content because you have the thing that I just have to have. That promotion I wanted at work, I know it was going to be the final piece of my eternal happiness. It was going to elevate my life to a level of unending bliss that few have ever known. But she got it instead of me. Sitting there in that nice new office that I want so bad, she is blocking me from my happily ever after. And I start to think about that other person in very negative ways. It's not just that I want it. I want it and I want you not to have it. You don't deserve it. I do. I would appreciate that vacation more. I would love your spouse better than you do. I would be more responsible and generous if I made as much money as you do. You shouldn't have it. I should. Coveting turns me against my neighbor instead of motivating me to love them. It turns me against my neighbor instead of motivating me to love them. And it's because I care more about that thing than I do the person. I care more about that thing than I do the person. It drives, coveting drives a wedge between me and my neighbor. James 4, 1 and 2 says, lays it out this way. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they, come from, do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Coveting makes it impossible for me to love my neighbor to the degree that I will be happy when bad stuff happens to him. That new truck that he just, that he just got that I should have, I'll find myself having a little internal dance party when he hits a deer. How is that loving my neighbor? Just like coveting puts a created thing higher than God, coveting also puts things above my neighbor. I'm putting my love for a thing ahead of my love for you. Look, Jesus said that the greatest two commandments in all the Bible are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. It's no wonder then that God takes coveting so seriously since it does so much damage to our relationship with him and with others. So in Luke 12, Jesus said, watch out, be on guard against all coveting. Be on guard against all coveting. Well, how can we do that? What do we have to combat Coveting, well, I, a few things here. First, let's get in the, in, the, in the habit of practicing gratitude. Let's practice 
gratitude. We need to do a better job of being thankful. Of noticing the blessings in our lives. Every day, there are literally thousands of voices telling us that we need something new or better or this will solve your problems or this is great. But there are very, very, very few voices reminding us how blessed we already are. Every commercial, every ad tells us you need something more. I was told this week I needed a new truck. I didn't know I needed a new truck. And it has to be a Chevy, apparently. Those voices are constant. They're unending. And yet there are so few saying, like, what are you thankful for? What are you grateful for? What blessings do you see in your life that you want to say thank you to God for? So set aside some time each day. Maybe it's in the car each morning. Turn off Spotify and, and, and just think about what God has blessed you with. Or, or maybe around a, a meal, sharing with some other people, like change the topic of conversation to talk about things that you're grateful for. It's amazing, actually, if you, if you just sort of like listen to conversations that go on, how many of them are about like, oh, I saw this thing, it looks awesome, right? As opposed to, hey, this thing that's already in my life, it is awesome, isn't it? Start asking people what they're grateful for instead of what they want. I think training ourselves to think, what am I grateful for rather than what do I want will go a long way in helping us battle coveting. Secondly, I think, I think we, we need to grow in generosity. Grow in generosity. Another way we can combat coveting is to give away what we already have. At the end of the day, the problem that this command addresses is that we place too high of a value on stuff. Coveting, you know, is us aiming at, like placing too high of a value on stuff we don't already have, but if we learn to be less impressed with stuff, that helps. So practice generosity. Look for ways you can give. You can give as opposed to accumulate. Growing in generosity, I promise you, it will help us. It will help us. Battle coveting. And here's a, here's a really, really practical one. As I was thinking this week, let's fast from shopping. Let's fast from shopping for like a week. I'll give you a pass on like food and gas, all right? But that impulse to open up Amazon and scroll through it, that impulse to just kind of scroll through, well, it's on Facebook Marketplace. Is there anything that I need? Need. The amount of time that we give to these things without stopping to ask, wait, why do I want this? It's, it's kind of absurd, actually. Like, I don't think we realize how much time, myself included, we devote to buying stuff. We spend hours upon hours reviewing the 7,000 different water pitchers that have a built-in filter. And we end up buying the first one we saw anyway. Do you know that Americans spend, I looked this up, I was, yeah. Americans spend 2.8 billion hours on Amazon every year. 2.8 billion hours. You can't wrap your mind around how long that is. To help, Let's put, let, me, let, let me say it this way. That's just shy 
of 320,000 years. Every year, Americans collectively spend 320,000 years of time on Amazon. Let me reduce that a little bit more for you. Every hour, Americans collectively spend 36 and a half years on Amazon. I'm 37 and a half years old. So roughly every hour, Americans spend my lifetime on Amazon. We give so much time to the stuff. So much time to the stuff. And we don't stop and think, why? What am, what am I trying to do? This? So, so take a fast from shopping, from researching, from buying for a week. And when you have that impulse, like, oh, I should, uh, why? Ask the question, why? That's not a question we're used to asking. But I think it will, it will do wonders if we can sort of create that impulse to question our desire to buy as we try to combat coveting. And lastly, we need to remember, we need to remember who is with us. This by far is the most important one. In Psalm 73, Asaph, the man who wrote this psalm, is writing about how he was struggling with coveting. Starting in verse two, it says this. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are strong and healthy. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. This is what they are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Listen to that list again. They, are, they have prosperity. They have no struggles. They have health. They are free of burdens. They're not plagued by ills. They are always carefree. Where do I sign? Right? That is a list I want. That's a list I feel like I have to have. Now, do you think the people that Asaph was coveting actually had no struggles and no burdens and were always carefree? I mean, not a chance, right? No one, no one is, even if their Instagram posts make it seem like it is. But remember, coveting lies to us and says contentment and joy and a carefree life are always a few things away. So Asaph saw these people from the outside and thought, man, that looks good. Man, that looks good. And Asaph, in verse 10, it says, it says he saw an opportunity to get, on, get in on the goodness it says, therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. People are flocking to them to, to get in on this as well. Asaph saw or thought that if he went down that road towards them, he would have all the good things too. That there was abundance and joy and carefree life for him if he went to go be with them. If Asaph would just make some compromises, he just knew his life would be so much better. Prosperity, no struggles, health, free from burdens, not plagued by ills, always carefree. But remember how he started this? Back in verse two, he said, my feet had almost slipped. I almost lost my foothold. What kept Asaph from slipping? 
Verse 17. Then I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Asaph stopped looking around him and turned his eyes to God. He spent time in God's presence and remembered how it ends. He goes on to write about how those who have all these things and pursue all these things at the expense of others are on a road that only leads to their destruction. He paints a grisly picture of what lies ahead for them. And Asaph realizes that the short-term prosperity and comfort isn't worth it. But that was not the biggest motivator for Asaph. More than that, way more than that, Asaph spends time with God. He goes into the sanctuary of God. And he sees how good God is. Verse 23 says, God, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion forever. Asaph sees all the money, all the titles, all the recognition, all the relationships, all the experiences, all of it. And he sees God and none of it matters anymore. None of it matters anymore. Asaph spent time with God and he was reminded of how good God is, how God has always been with him, how God had promised such a glorious future to him. And Asaph was overwhelmed by this. It moved him from coveting the rich and almost slipping to saying, earth has nothing that I desire besides you, God. Everything else doesn't matter. I want you, God. I have to have you, God. And we can see and say the same things as Asaph. Honestly, even more so because we see the cross. We see the place where God pursued us and said, I love you to the point of sending my son for you. Jesus laying down his life for us. God having sent his Holy Spirit to, to dwell with us. And so we read Romans 8, 32 and we say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he would even do that, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is offering us all things. When we turn our eyes to him, we can start to see clearly that nothing else we can desire compares to him. He is with us. As Asaph said, he is with us. And he will take us into glory. A glory that goes beyond anything we can imagine. So God, I pray. I pray that you, that you would stir our hearts to love you more. I pray that God, you would turn our eyes to you where we see that nothing on this earth compares. that what you have promised to us is so much better and greater than anything, anything else that we can accumulate here.
And all the things here, God, their joy, the contentment that they bring, it all fades. But God, you are with us forever. God, grow our love for you. Grow our satisfaction in you. And God, we trust that as as we continue to turn our eyes to you, that you will be faithful to your promise and we will find joy, peace, and love and security that only you can provide. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.